Firstly, I'll, um, I'll start with an apology. My title is clickbait. Right? This is the kind of title that you would expect to see when you log into BuzzFeed. Or, um, or uh, back in the day, you know, many years ago, before click, clickbait exists on social networks, it used to appear in daily newspapers. You know, you used to get things, uh, I don't know, bonus, a bonus for anyone that knows who this is. What is this? Anyone know? This is Monty Python. They made a book called The Bock. And this is an advert from it called uh, an advert for uh, sort of a mythical creature called Lapgok who would teach you the Welsh arts of self-defence. Self it's well worth looking at. Um, and, and it walks you through, and this is relevant to our talk, that the best form of defence is attack. The best form of attack is surprise. So the best form of defence is to attack your assailant before they're even aware of your very presence. <laughs> so I'm, uh, Lapgos going to be making a few appearances throughout the session. Uh, and I thought, really, that this is the objective here, is to allow you to fear no man and to build a SaaS business um, with these five secrets that I'm exclusively going to reveal to you today <laughs> with an asterisk above it to say conditions do apply. Um, oh, so a bit about me and then a one-minute advert on, on Datasift. So Mark said it, uh, summed it up really. Uh, I, I've spent the last decade in cloud businesses. Prior to that, I, I was a traditional enterprise software guy. I worked at companies like Documentum, which built the enterprise content management market before many of you were born. Uh, we, we then went on, a, I joined a, a Benchmark Capital, which was a VC firm, as an entrepreneur in residence. Um, when I joined, they went, oh, the last guy that was the entrepreneur in residence at, at Benchmark was a guy called Mark Andreessen, who had just, you know, uh, uh, built uh, Netscape. So um, to any benchmark uh, partners that put money in that fund, I apologize. I didn't get the same kind of exit. But it was a fantastic experience where literally we walked, it, walked into a room, they went, here we go, there's your desk, there's your phone, there's your computer, there's the menu to order your sushi at lunch, and there's the whiteboard. Go and build your $200 million revenue business in the next three years. Um, that is the most frightening experience I've ever had. But, but from that, uh, built a company. Um, that company's still around. It's called, um, uh, it's called, changed its name. It's called Alfresco, which does um, open source content management. Back in the time when we pivoted into open source, I decided that the future had to be in the cloud because it was simpler and uh, open source has got a lot of open questions about it in terms of commercialization. So I, I joined a company called Build Online. We, uh, we were a company that focused on collaboration, uh, mainly for engineering and construction. Span out from that, a company called Coral, which Salesforce acquired. It was, Coral was like the YouTube of documents. Uh, back in the day, I'm going back about five or seven, seven years now, um, it became, if any of you, do we have any Salesforce users in the audience? Okay, so if you use anything like Chatter or you store content in there, it's my platform that did that. Um, so really what I'm probably going to be talking about in my experience is uh, probably the last five or seven years. Um, you know, working in San Francisco, I got to lead product strategy. I worked in engineering and product. We built product, measured the adoption, made it successful. Um, I then also moved back to Europe, back to the UK, built uh, product marketing and then marketing in Europe. So uh, my engineer, my background is not as a marketeer though. So a lot of what you're going to see here is not models and algorithms. It's really just experiences. Um, and the things that I saw that have moved the needle for companies that I've worked in. Um, Mark mentioned Datasift. We are 
uh, uh, fast growing, I suppose we're a medium sized business now, we've got about 120 people. I joined it just as we'd got a first round of funding. Um, and what Datasift does is really um, work in a domain of big data. We work with social networks, we gulp down fire hoses for breakfast of data, and we try and transform that into something valuable for business. And we do that as a platform, so uh, all of these companies that you might be using to really peer into the world of social media to understand what's going on, the majority of them are powered by Datasift. Um, one of the benefits of building a platform is you can build an ecosystem around that, and I'll come and talk a little bit about that later, because ecosystems allow you to generate uh, lower cost of sales, which allows you to scale your business faster, um, by essentially leaving money on the table so that others can build along and with you. Um, good example of this later on is Twilio. Um, they'll show you how you can uh, build an ecosystem around uh, their tech as well. So that's what we do. Um, I won't bore you with uh, the uh, more corporate slides. Um, so I wanted, um, when I spoke to, to Mark about doing a talk here, uh, you know, I said, what am I gonna talk about for an hour? Uh, and he said, well, you, you talk, talk about business building. You know, beyond the engineer, core engineering, what do you have to do to make a successful business? And so this talk is really in two, two parts. Firstly, I'm going to talk to what I think are the known knowns, right? to use that Donald Rumsfeld. There's things we know we should be doing. You know, um, and there's probably a few known unknowns as well. Things we know we should be doing, we're not, we're not sure how to do them. Um, I want to just quickly do a quick round tour and a quick trip of some of these things of what is the de rigueur or the menu de jour for business building. What are companies supposed to do when they build a business? What is the playbook that we've all read that we all follow? And then I want to talk about the things that I've observed and uh, executed in companies I've been in that are beyond the normal ones. I hope some of them might be new to you. If not, my five secrets talk isn't really going to be very successful. Um, so, so in three courses, we all, we all know this, right? Whether we do all of this, we've seen the books, we've seen Eric Ries talk about lean startup and MVPs, we've read the blogs on how you want to do A-B testing. I'll be honest, I don't do all of these things. Um, and the problem is, is that we're all, we're all, we would have time for nothing else if we spent all our time on optimizing current business. But just to walk through it, we know we need to have a strong value proposition that you know, resonates with the buyer. We know that we need to build our product in an agile way. We build the essential features, the minimum viable product that allows us to test the essence of value. And then we listen through the data and we aggressively iterate on that until we ma get the magical moment of traction or user product fit or product market fit. Right, that's your, that's your starter. Your main course is now you're scaling up. You know, we know that you now to then get the machinery and to build some awareness. You hire a PR firm. You ask them what we should do. They're not sure, and neither are you, but everyone has a PR firm. <laughs> you then do content marketing because everyone has to pump out content, right? You've got to put it out there. In social, you've got to have some SEO. You need some SEM. You need some clickbait, all of these things. Um, you then need lead generation and nurturing. So this is when you get the professionals in. You start to then look at the metrics, understand how do we nurture people? Um, I, I really hate the word nurturing, actually, by the way. It really sounds like a childcare facility that we're doing for, for our customers. But we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, and then your product teams are sitting there, seeing all the data coming in, uh, making the right calls on what product improvement to do. Um, and then finally, your sales team is sitting there with a 
Red Bull and their pipeline and sales force, and they're churning out monthly recurring revenue, which if you're doing a, um, a, bit, a SaaS business is what you want. And you want to lock customers in for a year so that you've got their commitment, you, you've got a predictable revenue stream, and then you make them successful, and the, the, the dessert is you iterate on all of that. Um, how many people are doing all of those things? Put your hands up. Great. If I run out of time, you're going to come up and do a talk instead of me. <laughs> I, I do half of those things. I probably do half of them poorly. But we all know and we read and we blog and we follow people that are doing all these things, and it really makes me feel inadequate. And so, um, but the challenge is, is, even if you do all of those things, where do you end up? Right? Everyone's doing PR. Everyone's out there trying to get the headline. I just picked something randomly off TechCrunch yesterday. How can you compete with someone who makes gloves that make you play like Beethoven? Right? <laughs> you, you, we're we're going to struggle here if you're doing enterprise software, especially. Um, uh, everyone's doing email marketing. Right? You know, email marketing is a cheap way to grow uh, awareness. Right? And it's a great, cheap way to nurture people, because you only need a small number to, uh, to, to, to hit click, hit open. Uh, no surprise to any of us, or if it is, um, I hope this isn't too much of a revelation. We have become systematically um, tuned in to tune out, right? You know, this, these are the industry metrics for the UK. It's pretty good, 22% open email. 3% click and half percent are going to unsubscribe. So one of the challenges is everyone's doing email marketing, um, everyone's doing PR, um, everyone's doing content marketing. Um, and the problem now is uh, actually two years ago, if you did content marketing well, you could build a pretty good audience. Everyone's doing it now. Everyone's creating, um, marketeers have figured out the way that they can build awareness, influence customers, generate uh, excitement and intrigue is by creating content for them. All started with blogging, now it's starting with, um, now it's moved over to people publishing their slide shares, people creating uh, e-books, um, downloads, you know, where you have a lead capture form in front of it. Um, if you want to check out a company that does really good work in this, it's a company called Velocity Partners. Um, a few friends of mine that run a company that, of ex-journalists that actually do really good content marketing. One of their most viral successful pieces is this, which is um, basically the, uh, the coming age of content crap. Right? The fact that once every marketeer realizes that they need to create content, then it becomes a volume game. And, um, and you, you see it when you, when, you're, when you log into your favorite social network. Everyone's trying to promote to you that intrigue, that headline, that buzz feed that's going to help you kind of click through. But everyone's doing it. So what do you do when everyone's doing PR Everyone's doing email marketing. Um, everyone's doing um, content. Oh, everyone's doing social marketing as well. So just going to, you know, I logged into Facebook yesterday. Oh, huge, nice big banner ad for Tableau. I love Tableau. I'm already a customer. I wish there was some way they could remove me because I've already bought it. I'm already sold on it. Um, of course, because I represent DataSift and we are a social data platform, there are immense, hugely valuable things that you can do with social data. I'm actually not going to cover today. But there is a playbook. You know, what do you do once you've, well, okay, social media, great. There's three things you do. Uh, I build, a, I get my handle, so I start to solve customer problems through social. I appear to be a great company that you want to work with. I then do content marketing, so I push out content that hopefully goes viral, and then I do social advertising. Everyone's doing all of those, so what do you do 
beyond that, to help make yourself distinctive, heard, and unique. Um, what I'm getting at is if you just follow the same playbook as everyone else, you say end up in the same place as everyone else. This might surprise you, but um, I spent five years at Salesforce. I wasn't there in the early days. I, I joined when they were uh, 2,000 people. Five years later, when I left, they were 10,000 people. Um, they'd grown from a, perhaps four or $500 million revenue to about 1.5, sorry, yeah, billion dollar revenue in that time. So um, I got a chance to see how they could scale and also diversify. They were known as being Salesforce automation, contact management in the cloud. And so what, what was really interesting to see and be part of was diversification, building new products, taking them to market, building an audience around those, building, um, as I'll come on to talk to, not just the basics, but the emotional um, aspect, the connection that you need. There's quite a few parallels between this talk and our last one is that you need to create um, a reward uh, beyond um, optimization for people. So Salesforce, they managed to grow to a billion dollars by doing some of those things that were on the, the menu du jour. They pretty much had very little or no marketing automation. There was no automated brain there doing lead nurturing, right? figuring out, I've scored you, you've jumped on my website, I looked at your job title, I figured out that you're going to take a lot of time to nurture, so I'll put you in this slow lane of content. There was no, there are technologies like HubSpot, Marketo, Eloqua that do marketing automation. Did, they, weren't, they weren't present inside Salesforce. So how the hell did they manage to get to be a billion dollars, which I think we'd all be satisfied with, without that? Um, they had no single view of analytics. They weren't there. I'm from a big data company, so maybe I shouldn't say this. They weren't there pouring all their data in like, and getting an eye of Sauron across it and looking at it and going, you know, here are the hot spots of where I need to invest. They didn't have a fantastic view across all their data. Um, they didn't integrate across all of it. And they didn't have what is the sort of another sort of topic de jour, the growth hacker, right? Someone that basically sits there wired into the data, optimizing everything day in, day out. Yet we did have people, we did do A-B testing. We did have, um, we did do focus on pipeline optimization. But we didn't, do it, we, did it, we didn't do it across everything systematically. So we, we were one of those companies that said, okay, um, you know, we are going to pers personify um, you until you're a customer, and then you're, you're getting the product that we built. So I confess. Um, but it was moder moderately successful. And I guess my th you know, one of the themes that I want to talk to as part of this is, as you build your business, what kind of business do you build? Do you build a bottom-up or a top-down business? Do you build a market top-down, standing on stage, evangelizing and saying, ladies and gentlemen, the world is changing. And you need to change with it, otherwise you're going to be obsolete. <laughs> or do you build a bottom-up one where you literally throw your shit out there and optimize it? And, um, and you know, this type of business you've got, you're going to decide how you want. But I, I, I will tell you this from my experience, is that you can't become super successful without both, or blend of both. So for example, as we'll talk about, companies like Salesforce are very much top-down. Right? They're creating a message for the market around the future. Um, company, another company in their stable was Heroku, which was a developer platform, um, allowed you to create highly scalable applications and simplify, simplify doing it. That was very much bottom up. They wanted to create communities, evangelize, 
work their way up and optimize. They, in fact, didn't want to get up on a big stage and say how awesome they were. But you need both. Whether you're, are you making a market or are you really going to do a data-driven marketing approach on it? Now, I know there's people here across disciplines, um, and you may have different views of what marketing does, but essentially, marketing is there to help you find buyers. And so we all want to find buyers for our products. It's just how you're going to go about doing it. So my focus for today, you're probably sitting there thinking, great, which of the two is he really going to focus on? Well, a lot of my focus today is going to be on the top-down side of things. Because um, bottom-up, um, there's uh, plenty of content out there around optimization. There's plenty of companies that will help you on that. And it's pretty well documented. I'm going to spend more of my time focused on the top-down piece. Well, um, that's the plan. Um, hope that's OK for you, because those are the slides I've written. Um, so, a, a really a current way to view this battle. Um, how many of you have heard of Box? Box.net? Box? You've all heard of Box. Um, well, you're probably the re so, Box is very much top down. Aaron uh, is, as the founder of Box, is an, uh, as an um, enigmatic CEO, he's, his, this is straight screen grab from their website. Their story is top down. The way tomorrow works. The way tomorrow works. You know, us Brits, we're modest. We don't like to say stuff like this, right? But you're selling the future. If you think about it, what, especially when you're selling technology, you're either selling legacy or you're selling what's next, right? So the way that top-down works is, for Box, is the future of productivity is going to be, if you want to be productive, the future of productivity is around Box. Contrast that with how many of you have ever heard of Dropbox? All of you have heard of Dropbox. Dropbox very much was bottom-up, right? You heard about it because someone shared something with you. They recommended it to you, right? They, you look at their website. I mean, it's modestly understated, isn't it? It's uh, keep your work safe, share securely, and manage your team. You know, it's um, uh, not overselling what they're doing, not promising you the future, uh, and I think there is a place for both to be successful. But I think Dropbox uh, and Dropbox is a really good example. Are you building evangelistic users that are going to try and spread the word for you? Um, or are you going to try and build a market for the message that's going to help influencers spread the word for you? Of course, the answer is you want a bit of both. But I think um, my experiences have been more in top-down, so we'll, we'll spend a bit more time touring in each of those. I do believe, though, that you can't actually optimize yourself to greatness. You know, it's a bit like the, um, if you look at Google and their moonshot projects, you know, um, some fantastic interviews about them, if you look at it, the, what they're focused on there is 10x, 10x improvement. The fact that they're buying all crazy droids through to spaceships, I mean, they're looking for 10x on this. You can't optimize yourself to a driverless car. You know, so optimization will allow you to take a percentage, a 10x, 20x. That's fantastic. If you apply that at the right level, you, can, you might see a huge uplift in, in revenue. But you can't actually optimize your way to make a market, to build a market. Because you, you, need, you need to have a bigger story than just one of metrics. So with that, back to LapGoch. I'm now going to reveal to you my five secrets for guaranteed success. I really regret doing this one now. Um, as I say, results may vary. <laughs> so, so the first one will probably be obvious to you. 
if you want to build a big company, you have to transform an industry. You have to name the future, and then you have to claim it. Um, and I'm going to share with you a slide, the money slide from Salesforce. It's been used for 15 years. 50, oh, that's the other thing is repetition is good. 15 years I've used this same slide. You've probably, how many of you have ever been to a Salesforce event? A few of you? I bet you will have seen this slide. Oh, it's the next slide after this one. <laughs> and that is some dot, dot, dot changes everything. Mobile changes everything. Or internet changes everything. Or social changes everything. Or internet of things changes everything. The fact is that if you want to position yourself to win the hearts and minds of your customers, you are selling the future and your position in that to them. So the slide that Salesforce has used for 15 years, and as a certified spokesperson, I could probably, you know, I could probably quote it word for word, as could any employee there, is, you know, industries are transforming. What technology is transforming, what started back in the day with mainframe technologies, centralized, moved to client server, and that democratized technology so we could all use it, we could have the power on our desktop. And now the third generation is the cloud and enterprise clouds. The fact is that um, what you're selling is progress, a vision of the future. Um, just as a quick aside, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Disneyland, there is a fantastic, surreal thing you'd have to go to, which is called the Carousel of Progress. Has anyone been on the Carousel of Progress at Disney? It's a, would you not agree, it's a surreal thing to do where they have a revolving, well, carousel, and little vignettes of different households where they go back from 1930s or something to, we have our own washing machines, and then the set revolves around, and then they're in 1950s, and they go, we've got our own TV, and then eventually it ends with, you know, 2050, and they're like, we just have to eat pills now and plug ourselves into the machine. So it's progress, good or bad, but essentially what you're selling is a vision of the future and your potential success in the future. This is the way that Apple sells to you. Apple sells to you because uh, Apple's got an, two things, market relevance and an emotional hook. I th I'm, I've underlined the emotional hook piece because just putting a slide up that talks about your company to say we can increase metric X by Y percent is interesting, but is it really going to be an emotional hook? Okay, unless it's revenue, and if you can increase revenue by 50%, you've got my interest. But just actually having a market message, which is around the numbers, um, unless your numbers relate to the future that you're selling, or that your customers see as the future, uh, isn't particularly emotional. And so, you know, back to Apple, they sell you a better you, right? They're selling you a more productive you, a more engaged you, a more awesome you, because they're selling you what the future looks like. Apple's future looks like your future. Stock photography, I guess, on the last session. And, you know, there are some great, I just want to throw, throw a couple of examples. So companies like Zora. Zora is a billing platform. I mean, that's pretty mundane stuff. They are a cloud billing platform, so they manage all of the subscription packages that you've got, all the different types. I mean, that's a hard thing to sell. That's quite boring. But, but not for them, because their emotional hook, they're selling you the subscription economy. The world's changed. We used to buy, you're now renting, right? So imagine that if you're selling a billing platform, you can dogpile Uber in there, you can put a whole load of things that are going to point to the fact that the future is a subscription economy. 
versus the past, which was an ownership one. So, you know, Zora is a good, um, what I'm trying to get across is the fact that unless you can create an emotional uh, hook around the future, then um, you are, if you want to become strategic, that's ultimately what you've got to sell, what your customers are buying. They're buying not what you've got today, they're buying where you're going. And, and I would also add in for a little bonus thing that nothing sells the future or creates anxiety than a slide with a crack in the ground. So for a bit of fun, when you're done at the conference and you go home, create a slide for your company, for your proposition, with a crack in the ground in it. Right? This is, you, you may think, you may think that this is a real slide used off a real presentation to present a real problem which is that there is a social divide between you and your customers. I'm already feeling anxious just talking about this. A social divide. Your customers are social. They're on social networks. They're collaborating with each other. They don't want to hear about you. They're talking to each other. They're sharing their experiences, their opinions, what they love, what they hate about you. And where are you? You're on the other side. What about your company? What are you doing? Uh, cracking the ground works really well. Eh? It creates that anxiety of like, my God, you're right. I'm on the wrong side of this. How do I get what? Thank God you've given this to me. Tell me, what's the next slide? What does the future look like? Um, well, I didn't paste that into the deck. You'd have to go and find it yourself. But that, um, you know, the, the art of positioning the future and your relevancy to that is what I'm talking about. Um, a couple of other things, um, because we can't all get up on giant stages and... and tell a vision around the future. So a couple of things that I've seen that some good friends of mine do that are company building is actually write the book about it then. Um, if you're interested in inbound marketing, how many of you ever heard of the term inbound marketing? Is that something? That's 70% of the audience. The word, the phrase inbound marketing was coined by HubSpot. Um, exactly. And um, Darmesh is the CTO of HubSpot. He wrote the book on inbound marketing. So you hear about inbound marketing? You're hearing about it today? You're going to go and look it up on Amazon? The number one seller on inbound marketing is a book by HubSpot on inbound marketing. There's a beautiful symmetry to that. Um, and the other bonus feature that you get is that authors already have an elevated status of influence. Um, you know, if, there's a, if you're an author, if I'd written a book, you'd probably be listening to me. You know, the fact that you've, you've got an author <laughs> talking about it is, is amazing. So it's funny. Um, so write the book. Um, you can publish, you can self-publish these days on, on Kindle. Just write a book about what you're doing. Sell the future, become an author. Um, good friend of mine, Eli Cohen, who um, ran sales productivity at Salesforce, has taken everything he's learned and is building a new startup. Um, the startup, if you go to the website, it's called Saleshood, and it's about um, it's technology to help sales teams be more productive. So what did Eli do before launching? He wrote the book. He's written the book on, on sales productivity, sales managers, so he can, set, he can mail that out to his, to his uh, network of friends. He can go on book tours to talk about sales productivity. It's quite a simple thing to do, really, isn't it? But it's the fact that um, you, if you're selling the future, what better way to sell it than actually by writing, by writing the book about it? And the key thing is, is also naming it. I think HubSpot did a fantastic job of naming the future around inbound marketing, just as Salesforce named you know, enterprise cloud computing um, and, um, and many others. So that, that's my first secret to you. Probably not a secret, but a few interesting tactics that you're seeing. The second one, which is 
hopefully intuitively obvious, is customers sell for you. You know, there was a mantra of always lead with customer success. Customer success is the most important thing because it's not your awesome product, it's your awesome customers that you're highlighting. Um, what's wrong with this ad? It's, an ad? it's a photo of an ad that I took at Heathrow Airport when I landed and I saw an Oracle ad. There is so many, you can spend an hour on this, there is such irony that it's for Eloqua, which is about how modern marketing works. Yet there's nothing, there's nothing about who, who's been successful. In fact, is this really modern marketing? This doesn't feel like modern marketing. It feels like 1950s broadcast marketing. And so there is so much wrong with this because it's not, it's not framed uh, in the voice of the customer. It's framed in the voice of Oracle. We're number one. That's all you need to know. Um, here's another Oracle ad. I hope this, this won't be broadcast to Oracle, by the way. They are great partners of Datasift, so I just want to <laughs> apologize I if, if, if I am offending anyone. So here's another one. And I just, these are just off Google images. Uh, uh, Ban Machine Hero. Software and hardware complete. This is a very inside-out looking view of the world. It's about me. That's really not the way you're going to build a business. It's about me. It's not just about tech muscle. You know, it's not just about our servers are 85% faster than yours. That's great bravado. That's, you know, but it's not the way that you're actually going to aspire, inspire, and create an emotional hook with your customers. This is the kind of ad that's going to create an emotional hook. This is, off of, this is a homepage ad. Uh, this is the former CEO of Burberry. And a simple theme that they're trying to talk about is Salesforce and Burberry-like. Right, they're trying to drive you to uh, learn more. I, all I want to do is I want you to pay attention and learn more. Why is the CEO of a fashion company saying you have to be totally connected with everyone who touches your brand? What the hell does that mean? I don't know, but I, I want to learn more. The fact is, is that you need to make your customers the hero in the story, and you are just the enabler. Goes back to the first session this morning. It's not your awesome, it's their awesome. Their, Angela Errance, um, Sorry, Angela Arantz is, is badass because Salesforce helped her get there. Um, you don't have to do the high production uh, content like that. If you just look at HubSpot, they'll do the same thing, the voice of customer, right? The, especially and especially the face of the customer. Right? Not the logo, the face is an important thing because we connect with faces, we're drawn to them. If they're on your web page, even if they're below the fold, there's a high chance that you're actually going to get some attention on that. So this is how HubSpot puts it on their website. 10,000 companies. So focus on customer success. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? But you go to any company's website, how long before I actually, um, your company's website and your homepage, great, it's promoting your technology. Wouldn't it be great to promote your customer's success, though? Um, so the other thing, and, and you know, uh, we do this at Datasift, is uh, get it on video. Get it on video. It doesn't need to cost a lot. You can do low production. But there's nothing like getting the story across, the emotional angle of that, the success that they've had, like a video. Um, and that video, you can repurpose it. Great. You can put it into your, um, onto your website. You can put it into your email. You can put it into your uh, social. But get their story. Because what you're doing is you're, you're effectively uh, a journalist capturing, not a documentary about them, but a kind of two, a minute, two or three minute piece. It's amazing how powerful these things can be because it's your customer's success that's going to drive your company, not your own success. 
Um, third one is really around momentum. You might have the best, you probably do have the best technology. Um, you're probably frustrated that no one knows about it. Um, and so relevancy, with the first point of um, naming the, and claiming the industry is about relevancy. You've got to be relevant to an industry. You can't get a journalist to write about you unless it's relevant to the industry, to what's happening right now. The third thing is then how do you continue to build momentum around that? Because it's great, you can have a great um, customer win, a great piece of coverage for that, but what are you going to do day in, day out, or week in, or month in, to build momentum? You want to elevate from being this scrappy startup to an industry leader. And of course, PR plays a role here. How many, how many of you have PR firms that you work with? Okay, how many of you are actually PR firms? Okay, okay, I can talk openly then. They're not in here. It's not really an advisor. That's fine. That's fine. It's okay. Yeah. So, um, P you know, PR has a stack rank uh, of interests, right? Think of it as the APIs that you can invoke, right? Uh, you invoke a contro controversy API, you've got, you've got a story there. If you've got a battle on your hands, if you're calling BS on someone in the industry, fantastic. We all like to read about that stuff. That's like the Daily Mail of tech. So everyone wants controversy. Um, uh, acquisition, they're harder to engineer, but acquisitions get a huge amount of coverage. Funding or financing. Um, for those of you that have been through funding rounds, you'll know that you get a ridiculous spike for what you think is somewhat pedestrian news. We've got more money than we used to have. But people love to hear about success or funding or growth. You know, if you've got original, original research, if you've gone out and surveyed 30,000 you know, user types and you come up with some ridiculous insight that says that Internet of Things is going to be dead or something like that. That's great. There's a little bit of controversy in there as well. The last ones, like customer wins and partners are okay, but people don't really write massively around that unless it's an in-depth piece. Product launches, okay, people will cover that. It's not too hard to get uh, product launch covered. And then hiring and metrics. No one's really interested in metrics from a PR perspective that you increase your conversion rate by 35%. So I think when you, when you think about momentum, when you think about PR, you've got to frame it across one of these areas. What, what would you do for the year across each of these areas? What would you engineer to create controversy? Or what would you do to, what original research can you do that, you, that is actually going to have some um, unique insight as part of that? Um, the other way that we used um, and, and, and still use um, uh, techniques to build momentum is... You know, there's so much uh, distraction that we have online that it's ironic that in-person is still such a powerful way to build and maintain momentum. And today's a really good uh, example of that. So we would do um, at Salesforce and we do at Datasift um, a large number of what we call proprietary events, our events. We're not going to your event, we're doing our own event. Let's be honest, how many of you have rocked up at a, th a trade show and been disappointed by the pipeline you generated or the leads that you met. Put your hands up. Everyone is, right? They're, they're, they, they have huge promises, but they very rarely deliver on those. So do your own. Do your own events. You know, we used to put probably 80% of our budget, of events budget, into doing our own ones. Now, uh, and then going back to customers sell for you, you have a mix. You bring 40% customers, you bring 60% prospects, you create the opportunity for them to mix. Because what you'll find is your customers influence your prospects. They tell you, oh, this is how I'm using technology X. 
um, they are a much more powerful um, way to influence and build trust by building a community where you're not trying to hide customers behind the screen and say, in this room for customers, this one for prospects. There is a challenge with this, though, that they can get expensive. If you want to put an event on, um, you know, we're all, we all want to do these things economically. And um, Salesforce has got probably the highest production standards of any company I've ever seen. If you've been to an event, you know, they have a mascot running around on the stage wearing a big, you no know, software thing. That guy is the mascot for the San Francisco um, uh, Giants. He's a pro mascot. You know, um, you would walk around and do the, you'd have your white gloves on as you walked around just to make sure that everything was as it should be because the overall experience matters. Now, DataSift can't run, doesn't run to those kind of budgets to some degree, but there are other tactics that you can use. Ones that um, really work well, well, if you can't make it big, you make it exclusive. You've got a VIP exclusive event to a CIO, CMO, CXO roundtable with some of your customers on the future of some topic. I'm all, I, I want to sign up and I haven't even created this event yet. It sounds fantastic. Where do I go for exclusivity is the thing. And get a couple of um, really interesting speakers in there. Talk about how people are leveraging your technology, what they see as the future of what they're doing. That's a really powerful thing. You'll never see it advertised. Salesforce built a phenomenal um, CXO council. Um, they would have what they call the CXO whisperers, like you would just wander into their ear and say, talk about collaboration. Um, but essentially, that was a really powerful community that they built because CMOs want to talk to other CMOs. And if you can be a gateway to enable that, that's powerful. And of course, the other thing that, that we do is we'll, we'll use meetups, right? Um, we'll just create a, enable our sales teams or sales engineers to just run meetups, run a monthly meetup on how agencies are using social media or what is, you know, listen, come and listen to a brand that's using it to create some ridiculous insight. Uh, all those things actually cost nothing more than just, you know, a few beers, a private area, and a projector. So I know that um, these all add effort, but essentially they allow you to build community, which allows you to then scale. And I want to give you my best, uh, it's not my idea because I stole it off someone else and then someone else has stolen it off us now that we've done it. But I want to talk to you about one thing that we've done as well, which is... Um, a uh, good friend of mine, Stuart Townsend, runs something called Big Data Week. Has anyone ever heard of Big Data Week? Okay, well, about 20% of you. Big Data Week is organized by one company, um, but they've o effectively open sourced this as a world festival about big data. So on that week, they'll start by um, promoting their own events, and then you can run an event on Big Data if you, are, you want to run one about use of Hadoop or you want to run one for data scientists pile in, join in, add it to this roster. And so um, this is essentially by running an events that you hold under the bigger banner of an industry event, well, it gives you the headline role. Um, so we use this, we created Social Data Week. You're all going to race on now and buy loads of domain names ending in week um, <laughs> after this. This was phenomenally accessible for us. This was the first time that we, we had done this. We, we recruited a set of like-minded partners. Um, we ran two events. One in, well, we ran one event in New York and one in um, San Francisco. And then we, in total, throughout community, globally ran 17, all the way in from uh, Sydney to Harare in Zimbabwe. Uh, we had about 1,500 people across those. And it created 
um, this point where we're together as an industry advancing this industry. Um, we, we do the same, we're doing this as an, an annual event, a commitment. We are building an industry around this. So Social Data Week is where that industry is going to come together. Um, a friend of mine works at HubSpot. I told him about this. He said, oh, it was awesome. Oh, guess what they do three or four months later? Inbound Marketing Week. Um, a series of community events. So um, the good thing about these, these are incredibly economical because you are creating an umbrella for the industry to come together. And you are the headline prime sponsor and participant as part of that. So these are about industry advancing that. Um, I would say um, this is probably one of my, this is one of the best things that we've done to enable us to uh, position ourselves for the future and create, have somewhere to bring customers together and prospects. I bet you're looking at this slide cringing already. I tried to find the most nauseating <laughs> slide on focus. I mean, the word focus has become completely devalued. You know, how many of you have sat in a VC or how many of you are VCs where you've said, you know what, guys? You're not focused enough. Uh, I'm tired of hearing that. Because we all, we, all know, we all know that we need to focus. Um, the thing that I learned, and this is something that I learned at Salesforce and we have applied at DataSift, is, you know what, it's not, focus is important. But actually, what, what kills you or stops you from growing is not focus, it's alignment. There's a massive difference. Alignment means everyone in your company focused. You can say, oh, yeah, we're focused as a company. You walk around, you see people doing random stuff, you're not focused. So alignment uh, is the most important thing. And I'm going to walk you through how a data sift and Salesforce um, builds alignment across the entire organization. If there's only one thing you take away from this, it's this. Because this is also how you can scale your company, maintain your culture, and, and change direction fast when you need to. The fact that a company like Salesforce can grow to 10,000 people and move fast is because of this. I'm really teeing this up to be something amazing, aren't I? I'm getting worried now. It may not be. Um, so when you Google it, if you Google it, you'll, you Google something called V2MOM. So every, the process is this. Every year, or in fact every six months, the executives, the company would get together, figure out what the hell is it we're going to do. Where are we going to focus our efforts? What is this the year of? This is the year that we do dot, dot, dot. What are the needles that we're going to move? We all know that there's so many distractions really to focus the company on it. You need two or three initiatives that you're really going to push on. And so... Um, Salesforce had a methodology they called the V2MOM. I mean, it, it's, you could call it other words, like it's basically a cascading list of priorities, right? Um, and um, I'll walk you through uh, the variant that we use at DataSift, which is called the VTOM, which is about your vision, the themes for the year, the objectives, and the metrics. Um, I've taken a... Um, these are internal documents, so I've, I've sort of taken a bit of liberty and recrafted the data sift one. I thought you probably wouldn't want to see all of the gory detail. But essentially, the vision, the vision that for your company, the vision for your employees, and the vision for your customers codified down as small as possible for the year. Right? So this isn't around the life-changing vision that we've got for five years, because that's hard to be actionable today. Um, really, this is around, what are you doing this year? What is this the year of? So for us, I won't read it out, but for us, for DataSift, it's the year of expansion, 
beyond what we've mastered, which is social, into what's next, which is essentially streaming real-time data, um, fast data at massive volumes. And so for us, when we present to our company, when we onboard new hires, when we kind of do performance reviews at the end of the year, they're all done in this context. So that's the vision. Um, and by the way, this whole thing should live on one piece of paper. Um, the themes, what are the themes? What are the things that you're moving the needle on? What are you focused on across the company? And these are three things, you know, maybe five, but they just allow you to frame, what are we gonna, what are we gonna do? Um, and then what you'll have is your objective. These are the seven to 10 things that we're doing. And they are really narratives, a paragraph on what, do you, what is the message you're sending to the organization? What do we need to do to make X? So if it's make every customer successful, then we're gonna have a, uh, a statement there around what our intent is. So this allows you to, to, to define your intent at a company level and communicate that across the company. And what you'll find by doing this is that um, it's a process of distilling that down into three to five things. As soon as you've got 15, you know you're not gonna get to them all because you've done them all in stack rank. Um, and, the, and the last piece is also the metrics because you need a scorecard by which you're gonna measure yourself not just at the end of the year, but during it. So what are, the, what are the needles that you're gonna move? How are you gonna measure success? You know, beyond, beyond sales, who have a pretty easy way to measure their success in pipeline and revenue, becomes harder for other functions. And so if you are product management, you're gonna, you've gotta think about how, what are the metrics that I'm gonna to use to move the needle? Now, this isn't something that's just done in an ivory tower at the top of the company. This is something that the whole company participates in. So CEO or exec team down to each functional areas. So here's, one for, here's the marketing one. Here's one for customer service. Here's one for sales. Um, that's how far we've gone at DataSift this year. The next level down is to do that individual so that you've got your statement of intent for the year. And that's the thing. I think if you were to ask any former employee of Salesforce, that's left and reflected on what they've done. I left two years ago. This is the biggest takeaway that I've got, which is really, um, it's not lack of focus, it's lack of alignment that's gonna stop you from being successful. Um, so as well as um, cascading through the company, these things are visible to all. So as you grow a company and you go, yeah, what, are the, what is the East Coast sales team focused on? You can see, these are the objectives that we've got for the year. So you do them at the start of the year because the new year punctuates fresh start you review, and then we might refine the mid-year, but essentially we're not trying to create plans that change at high frequency. And at the end of the year, it becomes your scorecard. What have you done, either a team, department, an individual level? Um, so those are the, those, what I've spoken about mostly is a lot of it is top-down stuff. I do want to just highlight one thing that, that we do at DataCF that Salesforce does, does ridiculously well, which is the web pipeline machine. Um, and so, because at the end of the day, we all know that it's leads you're looking for. Um, so what, there are lots of techniques, there are lots of tactics for building awareness, lots of tactics for nurturing, but um, you look at any successful company in the B2B space, you'll find three calls to action. And this is Marketo's website. Marketo is marketing automation platform. They've got everywhere you go, the offer of a free trial, a four minute demo and a contact us. These are the three offers that generate a vast majority of your pipeline. Um, and what's interesting is when you click on the free demo, 
And there's a debate whether this is good or bad. There's a lead capture form. You want to see the demo, you've got to fill in some details. So um, that's a controversial one, but it's there for a reason. Because if you were to distill down what I've seen good companies do well, they generate, especially in B2B, is they generate massive amounts of buzz. They drive people to the website. They, they convert them into an offer. So these three offers are always good, solid offers. You should understand what the conversion rates are across each of those. But I think the thing that Salesforce does exceptionally well is they follow up with humans. Um, I, am a, I get a little bit frustrated when you look at marketing automation as a theme. It's like a quiz that you have to complete before someone will talk to you. Well, when you filled in your lead capture form, we looked at your title and we realized that you weren't worthy to speak to. So you've got to go and consume some more content from our website. You've got to download some white papers, fill out a survey, tweet about me before I'll contact you. Because I think you're sales ready now. I'm going to qualify you at that point. I kind of think that's a little bit of bullshit. When you could hire one person and they can, uh, a minimum, reach 200 people a month. They can talk to 200 people a month to help them, to qualify them, and to convert them so that say into a prospect that sales can talk to. I um, couldn't, don't have any slides that talk about this, but uh, if you can read it, here's a screenshot um, from an event where the, they're called the SR teams, the inside sales teams, the people that follow up on the contact me's, demo requests, um, and um, free trials. And they call everyone. Um, they might deduplicate the data. And they have basically a six-step process by which they're going to be, as they call it, um, politely persistent. You know? And their job here is not to tell you everything about the product. Their job is to qualify, have you got a project? Have you got budget? Have you got decision makers? Have you got a time frame? If you've got all of those, I'm in. If you have got other questions, I can direct you where to go. But they become the first point of which funnel is built. And I would encourage you, as you look to scaling, and you look uh, content marketing, marketing automation is fantastic, but you know what? Actually, humanity that you can put in by having someone that is calling you to help is an astonishing thing. I ha I've had it where people have called me and you go, well, I'm, I'm probably too small for you to deal with as a company, but I'll tell you what we're trying to do. And you just can't get that by, by analyzing behavioral data off of clicks and, uh, and content. I know that's obvious. But how many of us have filled out a lead capture form on a website and no one did call? Nothing ever happened. Or they just started to send us more emails around the next, next thing. And in, you know what the click rates are? You know, the 3% click rates on email? Look, life's too short. If you want my attention, reach out to me. Um, so, so those, that's my five. That's my five. I've got, um, hopefully, the secrets of LapGoch have been revealed to you. Um, there are others we could have gone on to. I think ecosystem is a really critical thing. I didn't have time to talk about that. But essentially, if you can build a model and a market where you can leave money on the table for others to build an economy, that's a hugely powerful thing. Um, so with that, I'd like to pause there. Thank you for your attention. And also, just ask if you have any questions. I know I've uh, bored you senseless for 50 minutes. I should stop and listen for a moment. Questions from the audience? Could I just say for questions, there'll be microphone. Oh. If you want questions, put your hand up. We'll try and get a microphone to the next person so it will all happen very quickly. 
then hold the microphone to your hands. This is something that so many people miss. They get the microphone and they go, oh, great. Mm. Um, so hold it in front of your mouth and say your name and your company and then the question. Hello. Is that good? Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name's James. I uh, work for Redgate in the sales team. Um, your previous slide, can we go back to it? Yeah, sure. Oh, that one. Yeah. Um, I was interested to know on the, for the SRs, do they do the whole sales process or do they pass the leads on? Their only job is to pass leads on. So they essentially set up a, a, a follow-up for an account executive. At what point? Is that after day 30 or when does that... Well, what this is, what they're showing here is the persistent process that they follow. If you don't respond, they're going to try and kind of have a 30-day plan to get you to respond. But typically what they would do is a three-touch, they'll try and reach you three times to qualify you, to understand what your, what your objective is and if you've got an active project. And then typically, you know, if you've got technical questions, I'm going to connect you with the right team to do that. What are their metrics? The metrics are conversion rates into uh, early stage opportunities, stage two opportunities. Um, if you're interested in this, um, I'm not commissioned on it, but I think if you, should, you should probably read Saleshood by Eli Cohen, the book that he's built that. to fund the company, because um, he, he'll talk about this. Thank you. Great. I should also say, as well as an inbound sales team, they have an outbound sales team that are looking for companies, um, public statements around companies that are transforming, that may be prospects. And so essentially you have a team that is fed from the website, inbound, and then a set of, um, again, if you Google it, they're called EBR, Salesforce called them EBRs, enterprise business representatives, that are essentially hunters. So their tools of choice are news content, industry content, and then LinkedIn to be able to reach out to people. Good question. Uh, Matt well, Cooksley. Another question Hello. so that we can get, yeah, we've got one there. So someone else that wants to ask a question so we can get the mic lined up. And the reason I'm intervening here is that we'll work on the same principle for the next two days. So if you just remember, then we'll get through questions quicker. Great. Sure. Hi, Matt Cooksley, take two from, from Make Positive. Um, your, your V2 mum slide was very interesting with the the vision and the objectives and the metrics. How do you um, sort of roll that out across individuals within the company to make sure that um, each objective has sort of proper ownership? Yes, yeah, good question. So, you know, we did it for the first year at DataSift this year, and I would definitely say we, we were paying some alignment debt. Right? There's nothing like getting four or five kind of your leadership team in a room to say this is you know, enough talk around what we might do, you're going to put it down on one piece of paper. You know, it's a bit like the, what is it, Mark Twain that said, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. So the fact that you can distill it down is key. In terms of how you roll that out, typically what we did is once we would, once we'd had what we thought was a solid draft that may only be refined, we held a company session, like to walk you through the plan for the year. Maybe fit that in with a sales, with, a, with an all hands kickoff or company kickoff. And then what we did is we had, like, there's a 60-day to done plan that we've got. So essentially what you do is each functional lead, like your head of marketing or head of customer service, would draft those, get those, make sure they're aligned with what we're trying to do, get those reviewed, and then it goes down to an individual level. So it's probably a 60-day process, and by, by which at the end of it, you've set, up, you've set yourself up 
with materials and metrics that are going to help you towards the end of the year to say, have we done a good job at an individual level and at a company level? Um, hi there, Sushrin Dagan. I'm founder and CEO of Ariso. I sold my company last year. Um, so I'm looking to expand into big data is one of my interests um, and, and SaaS software. One question I had for you is that you mentioned free trial. And um, in my last business, it was something that I actually banned uh, the sales team from giving away. Do you think from a uh, your perspective and Sony selling uh, software as a service, do you think it's actually an essential part to provide free trial, given that we know free always is associated with? Yes. With well, there's always free trial with an asterisk at the end of it, isn't it, of uh, time limited <laughs> or feature limited. It's like so, talk. So I, I can say this because, I, you know, there's two camps of it. There's one which is a free trial, self-service evaluation and then conversion um, online conversion to a customer. And that's, that's a huge undertaking to allow you to, to a customer to self-evaluate and then ultimately to buy with no salesperson calling. What, uh, what we've tended to do is um, free trial is, is a very strong marker of, it, of interest. Um, I mean, if you contact me is the strongest, free trial is the next, and a demo, obviously, the weakest. So typically what we'll do is we will, people that sign up for a free trial, we will then, um, back to the SR process, use, do a follow-up and try and see what they're doing because CRM is, is as, like big data is complex. CRM is ridiculously complex. Am I really going to load all my company's data up into your system for a 30-day trial? No way. But what I would do is it, I can call you up to say, look, I know you've taken a free trial. What are you trying to do? Because I can just fast track you to people that can help you achieve what you're doing. So I don't want to use the word bait and switch, but I will use it. Because essentially, to some degree, a free trial is a very good bait and switch. I'm actually just going to use it to then follow up with you and respond. There is definite value of free trial in the Dropbox world or on mass where I can convert. But if you're selling a highly complex product, like a big data technology, I think it is a valuable um, offer to have. Um, and you just need to either feature limit it or time limit it. One more. Hiya. Uh, just following on the free trial um, idea, if you are selling into a market where your customers don't like being contacted, like you're selling to introverted personality types, like software developers, um, you can't pre-register things to get, to, to get them to download a trial because your conversion rate crashes. So you have to go into it blind. What approaches would you recommend to maximize your conversion rate in that environment? Yeah, that's, a really good, that's a really good topic. I don't know if I can do it full justice in the time we've got, but essentially I think the short answer is you're right that when you are working with a developer audience, they're going to puke up if a salesperson calls them. So essentially the answer to that is then build community. So you build a community to support that so there is a destination, a place where, that, that where those individuals can be nurtured. So you may have, um, look at a company like Zendesk. Zendesk does a good job of this. They do a good job of getting you in, not contacting you, but giving you a community that's going to nurture you through interest. And along the way, you can offer a webinar offer or a, um, 
Uh, one thing that 37 Signals, which is a very developer-esque type uh, thing, did a really good job of, they did uh, CEO open hours. So they basically did like an open hours uh, online session where you could join just to talk to the engineers that built the product or the, the CEO of the company. And so I think um, community building can still allow you to, uh, to get a deeper insight into which customers are likely to convert plus metrics on, on obviously on what they're using. That's great. Well, I think I'm out of time. Thanks ever so much for listening. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that. We certainly did. Um, for more talks from Business Software Conference and other BLN events, visit theblm.com or come to our next event. You'll love it as much as we do.